Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. Well, part two of the release of the state capture report uh, was largely overshadowed by those JC interviews that took place. Uh, this morning, we're going to be focusing on one of uh, the key subjects or the key SOEs that was looked into in that report, and that is Denel. Of course, we have for, I think, probably the last year and a half now, uh, at least that I've been part of the show we have been profiling exactly what it is that the workers at Denel have been going through while this company faces financial ruin. And this report really helps us to understand how Denel ended up in the position that it is in today. So I'm going to let you know who our guests are shortly. Let's begin firstly by listening to this report uh, compiled by Amina Akram. According to the report, the 2015 Board of Directors of Dinell, led by Mancha, failed to carry out their fiduciary duties when they suspended top performing executives. The Commission recommends Dinell and the Department of Public Enterprise, the Companies and Intellectual Property Commission, consider bringing court proceedings against Mancha and other former directors. Mancha was a key player in aiding state capture Dinell as he campaigned to get rid of effective executives to capture Denel for the Guptas. Trade Union Solidarity, which was very vocal against the former leadership, says it notes the second report and its recommendations. Derek Mans is Sector Coordinator, Defense and Aerospace at Solidarity. Solidarity notes the second report. We note the recommendations of Judge Zonda in terms of the suggested actions against the 2015 Denel Board as well as the Denel board chairperson solidarity at this stage will give space to the law enforcement authorities to act in this regard however should they not fulfill their duties you will apply for a nolly prosecution certificate where we will act in our own accord to make sure that these culprits are prosecuted whether it be civil or criminally Economist Lumkile Mondi says the second report findings reaffirm what analysts have been saying about state capture. The Radical Economic Transformation Project is a political project. You repurpose state resources and in doing so, you loot as much as you can. A combination of Communist Party, trade unions from COSADU, as well as those in the ANC led by Zuma, concocted a plan to repurpose constitutional bodies and um, and in doing so deploy cadres uh, whose purpose was to take as much as possible out of the state has not been reinforced by the Zondo Commission, both the first part and the recently released second part. Really, South Africa has got a political problem. Like other state-owned entities captured, the commission found governance processes at Danil had deteriorated and board members breached Public Finance Management Act. Danel lost billions to state capture, and it now relies on taxpayers to fund its bailouts and is failing to pay salaries to its staff. State capture Danel also prompted the commission to recommend that appointments of board members and senior executives at state-owned entities no longer be left solely in the hands of politicians. It says politicians failed dismally to appoint people with integrity. Terry Crawford Brown is a former Denel whistleblower. Denel, billions and billions have been poured down the drain 
on Donnell. And yes, so the, those workers should have been transferred to other more socially productive uh, jobs. There has been so much interference of political appointees. Uh, and during the defense uh, review back in 1996-98, it was intelligence operatives from the ANC who warned me that the consequence of this was political protection because of kickbacks to the ANC. They have uh, bled the SOEs so that virtually all 700 of them are now in a state of disaster. The commission has also recommended Mansha be declared a delinquent director under the Companies Act. I am Amina Akram, SABC News. Well, joining us for this conversation today is independent analyst, writer and researcher, Dr. Dale McKinley. Dr. McKinley, good morning to you. Good morning, Kathy, and to your listeners. Karan Singh is the executive director at Corruption Watch. Karan, good morning. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning, Dale, and good morning to the listeners. I think an important place for us to begin this conversation would be to look at where Denal was in 2011, because it is only in appreciating how excellent a condition that particular SOE was in, that we can also have a full appreciation for what the destruction of Denal over just, you know, over the 10 years has effectively meant. Uh, Dr. McKinley, let me begin with you. Sure. And so listen, I think, first of all, to put that in a bit of historical context, I mean, there has been, you know, before the, the sort of Gupta scene and the, and the Zuma came to power, there were a range of uh, issues around Danell and its functioning, obviously, particularly with regards to the arms deal and uh, exports of weapons to uh, countries that were experiencing human rights, you know, rights violations. So it wasn't, but as a business entity, um, it was it was basically doing okay. I mean, irrespective of whether or not we think Danell should actually exist and whether or not we should be produ- producing weapons and exporting them as a country, leaving that aside. Uh, as, a, as an entity, as a state-owned enterprise, it had its problems, but uh, it was seemingly, at least in those latter part of the two early, uh, the first decade of the century, it had been, uh, you know, its balance sheet was pretty decent. Uh, it was, it was uh, moving along uh, in a way that looked fairly positive. Um, along come, you know, uh, the, the Guptas and Zuma and everybody else, and, and Danelle becomes a target. So I think what we'll discuss, obviously, is how that happened and what happened, but Essentially, as a state-owned enterprise, it was in a position, I would argue, that many state-owned enterprises, it wasn't in the best position possible. It was, there were problems with governance. There were problems with financial management. But it was um, the individuals that had been appointed were seemingly trying to clean it up. And uh, there was also positions with, uh, with I mean, some controversies around worker conditions and, and salaries and these kinds of things. But I think what Danell represents, is a, a situation where, irrespective of, of the character of what it was doing, uh, it was a classic case of taking an SOE that was performing decently, um, and and uh, its where its balance sheet was decent, and basically ruining it. Um, it's a classic example, and that's why I think it got quite a bit of attention in the case of the Zonda report. When we look at the role of ministers in general, especially uh, the position of a minister of public enterprises, certainly during that period, the role of Malusi Gigaba, the role of Lynn Brown is found by this report 
to have been central to effectively opening the door and allowing for the kind of looting to, to take place at, at Denal that we saw. Karan, let's talk about how that process begins to unfold. Firstly, uh, through then Public Enterprises Minister Malusi Kigaba. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think uh, we see, um, you know, a range of findings against um, Minister Kagaba throughout the report. We know that he was a, a regular visitor to the to the Gupta compound. Um, uh, you know, the, there's every indication from the report that there's a strong case for former Minister Kagaba to, to answer to, and that his testimony before the commission you know, wasn't particularly revealing or sufficient in terms of uh, giving us an insight into the role that he played. I know specifically in terms of Lynn Brown, um, you know, who was who was a minister between 2011 and 2015, that uh, the, the adverse findings against her in terms of her decisions not to renew the terms of the board and, and institute uh, a new board, uh, and, and that's, you know, seen as, as sort of the beginning of this kind of process of, of capturing Danelle. I, I think when we look at, you know, the findings of this report, one of the things, of course, will be what are the lessons that we take from the way in which state capture happened and what are the safeguards that need to be put in place to ensure that, you know, officials in certain positions are better protected, uh, that when they are resisting any form of interference, um, the easiest option is not simply to get rid of them. And when we look at the role of the then Denal CEO, Riaz Saluji, uh, we certainly see how he was somebody who was inconvenient um, for for the plans and, and how he effectively was moved out of the company to make way for these lucrative tenders to ultimately end up uh, with Gupta-associated uh, companies. Dale? Yeah, so listen, I, I think uh, you've, you've hit on, on, on the nail on the head with regards to the fundamental problem here, uh, which doesn't just apply to Danelle, but a lot of the SOEs, and tra- in this case, Transnet as well in the second report, which is that there's a huge gap. What, the gap is this, is that SOEs have these boards, and these boards effectively are under the thumb of the, relative, uh, the relevant minister, the politician. The politician, the relevant minister can appoint those boards, and those boards have powers to essentially run the show. They can fire, hire, they can do all sorts of things with regards to operational circumstances. So if, you're, if, you're, if your agenda is to capture a state-owned enterprise, if your agenda is to turn it around and service your own needs, then that's the way to go. What you're going to do is you're first going to go to the politician. You're going to get that politician on your side. And then that politician, that minister, in this case, Lynn Brown and Malusi Gigaba, are then going to go and say, look, these board members are, are in our way. They're not, they're not playing a ball here. We're going to replace them, and we're going to get people who will. They do so. Once that board is in place, what do they do? They go after the CEOs. They go after the people that are, are, are uh, the ones that are in their way. They put people in that will do the bidding, and voila, what do we have? We have a, a state-owned enterprise that is effectively, from that point on, captured for the particular uh, private interest. And that's fundamentally where things need to change, irrespective of all of the people that might need to answer a case individually for criminal charges and perjury and all sorts of other things. Where the fundamental problem is, and it will keep repeating itself, is that we don't change that setup 
and basically make boards of, of SOEs independent and essentially ring-fence them from politicians. Mm. We're going to continue this uh, conversation. It's just gone 10.30. Nomsam Thuli has your latest he- uh, news headlines. Continue the conversation on the talking point, and we're focusing today on some of the findings of part two of that state capture report, which effectively breaks down the undoing of Denal and uh, you know gives details in terms of how uh, the looting and the capture of Denal took place. Dr. Dale McKinley is an independent analyst, writer, and researcher, and Karang Singh is the executive director at Corruption Watch both uh, being part of this conversation. Of course, uh, we'll also be taking your contribution soon. Uh, you can dial us in on 011-714-2006 and on the WhatsApp line 614 and, and like I was saying earlier, I really think that one of the important things to draw out of these reports is to ask the question, well, what are the lessons that, that have been learned and what are the safeguards? that need to be put in place uh, to ensure that our state-owned enterprises become a lot more resilient to the climate, whether it's a political climate under which they're operating, so that good governance, um, regardless of, of the context, is still what is emphasized above all. I, I want to look at the, the role, again, of putting certain individuals into certain positions that ultimately enabled the the corruption at Denel. Dr. McKinley, you talk about the role of boards and how powerful these boards are. In the in terms of the findings around Denel, we have a board chair um, Daniel Mancha, who the commission has now found, you know, needs to be investigated alongside his entire board for some of the decisions that they they made. And, and one of those individuals also happens to now be the communications minister, Kumbuzo Nchaveni. But let's look at how the, the role of that board ultimately became destructive to Denal. Sure. I, I think uh, it, it's important to note uh, that in, in the case of you know the, the people that were appointed in the case of Mancha, uh, that he had been previously struck off the role of attorneys. Uh, this is, you know, effectively uh, you are putting in place. I mean, it was so bold. You know, it was, it was such a bold uh, move, a bold move, uh, to put someone in place who clearly uh, had had a case to answer himself. But yes, uh, in the broader context, where where the lesson is here is what we have is. We, we inherited a situation from apartheid with these state-owned enterprises where the state-owned enterprises were controlled by the executive. They were controlled by a very small number of very powerful people within the executive branch and uh, ministers in the cabinet. And we see this in a whole range of things. For example, the commissions itself, the Zonder Commission and other commissions are all appointed by the executive and are under the thumb of the executive. They determine the terms of reference and everything else. This is fundamentally an undemocratic way of going about running not only a process, but a state-owned enterprise. And what we should learn clearly is, first of all, if we're going to have public enterprises, and I would prefer to uh, uh, say that they're public as opposed to state-owned, what we need to then have is we need to have independent boards, as I mentioned, boards that are appointed independently through a parliamentary process, not through an executive process and not at the whim of a minister, 
We then need to have a situation where those uh, boards and uh, those state-owned enterprises are transparent in terms of their finances, in terms of their programs and expenditures, where you can have proper civil society representation, for example, which we've just seen with regards to the Coburg uh, situation, where if you don't have proper civil society, then you're only going to have those that are within the inner circle of politicians and businesses that are running the show. So we need to broaden out representation. We need to ensure that there's transparency and accountability of that SOE through the parliamentary process and through a public process. And then we also need to ensure that the powers of the executive in order to fire and hire and basically interfere politically in appointing people and getting rid of people is taken away. And that process is done as you would in any enterprise that is uh, accountable to basically its shareholders. Who are the shareholders of the public enterprise? The public. It's not the executive. It's not the president. It's not ANC politicians. And that's the lesson we have to learn. Karan, you, you know, Dale talks about the, the history that has been inherited through many of these SOEs and, uh, you know, part of the current system that has been created. And I think it came out in the commission as well that the, the, the reason why there is this amount of influence in terms of constituting these boards is to ensure that the individuals that are put there will be able to, you know, uphold the mandates of uh, the party, the political party in governance and and ensure that from a policy perspective, that party's policies are being implemented. And we heard the conversation around CADA deployment effectively and, and how that also then uh, fits into the broader st- uh, stream of how the executive executives of these institutions are constituted. So how do we then, you know, how do we make sure that there is the balance of saying there must be transformation, there must be these individuals that are appointed that will be able to ensure and monitor um, from a policy perspective that the party in power is effectively able to fulfill the mandate for which it has been voted into power for versus uh, just the you know the full the full opening up of, of these processes to abuse yeah no i mean i, I think that uh, you know this this goes to kind of the part of our current democratic crisis you know in terms of the, the tensions between what would be uh, maybe more narrow interests of the governing party and then a kind of notion of a broader notion of what would be in the public interest. So, I mean, I think it's important just to take a step back and just note exactly what the, what the report is saying. It talks about a pattern of indefensible appointments. It says it's quite clear that the appointments of members of boards of directors of SOEs as well as senior executives such as CEO, CEOs and CFOs can no longer be left solely in the hands of politicians because they have failed dismally to appoint persons with integrity and capacity to lead. It would be completely unacceptable to allow this situation to continue. It then goes on to say that it's necessary that a body be established and tasked with the identification, recruitment, and selection of the right people who will be considered uh, after these appointments. So it's talking about a structural recommendation which takes the power out of the hands of politicians on the basis that the historical record before us shows that politicians have abused that that authority that was given to them. 
I mean, if you look, you know, it even has some impact upon the how we're looking at the, the recommendation now around the chief justice appointment. You know, we, we look at a constitutional framework where there's almost a kind of imperial executive, where, where the executive is given these broad powers. And it's clear that, you know, that the drafters of our constitution didn't you know, fully consider the implications of, of how that type of situation could be manipulated. So mm. I think when Dale talks about an uh, independent board w- with a transparent process, we, we, we're thinking about how we can put systems in place which will future-proof our democracy from a, from the possibility of state capture going into you know into the future. So the, the commission is a little bit they, they kind of hint at the idea of this independent body, but they say that more details around this recommendation will come in the next report. Obviously, when we get the the ESCOM uh, case study. Mm-hmm. And and part of why that is that is important is because ultimately the finding around Danelle and the role of the board is going to be likely similar to, to, to what happened at, at other SOEs. You know, if, if we look at the case studies that have been released thus far, if we look at SARS, we look at SAA, we look at Danelle, we look at Transnet, it, it's very much same, the same pattern. Um, we've seen, you know, there's been, we've had a moment now, at least at SARS, for a new commissioner to come, for, for a process to be put in place for the appointment of a new commissioner. And I think we can say that that was largely a, a slightly different process and a defensible uh, a process. But absolutely, you know, we're going to see this now with ESCOM. And um, you know, unless we make a structural adjustment, uh, a fundamental adjustment to how we do appointments to these leadership positions, then, then we run the risk of these types of, uh, um, you know, appointments for, for, for other reasons. Uh, uh, than, than the democratic good taking place. One of the other interesting uh, recommendations that, that is made on this issue is the the introduction of a law that makes the malicious abuse of power, um, you know, basically where one would either face a crime or even imprisonment, and the, the example here is is used of former Minister Lynn Brown. Dale, how do you see that recommendation, and, and how could it possibly be implemented? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very difficult one, Cathy, um, in that case, because uh, I think as we all appreciate, you know, recommendations for criminal prosecution and, and putting a case in court that's going to stick is a, are two different issues. So. It's going to, I think, bringing criminal charges would be a difficult one because you would basically have to prove that there was some kind of of obviously conscious uh, abrogation of particular laws, which might be the case. Uh, But I would say that where we need to strengthen, that that would be good if there's enough evidence and and the prosecutorial authorities uh, feel that they have a strong case. But I would think where we have completely failed um, and where in, in our focus here in terms of the boards is the Companies Act and this issue of delinquent directors. Mm. So basically, we have a law that says, if you are appointed, you know, everybody wants to, you can see how the competition is to get on these boards, because it's quite lucrative, not only financially in terms of some of the, the goodies that people get, but also opening other doors, and you have all sorts of people sitting on all these boards, and this is what happened with the Guptas. They just handpicked people and put them on these boards, irrespective of what they were doing. When they actually then... Uh, made those kinds of decisions that that essentially cost the SOE its, its financial integrity as well as everything else, they became delinquent, according to our law. 
The question is, why are we not implementing that law? Why are we not going to the company director? And why isn't Danell and Transnet and everybody else saying, look, these board directors were delinquent? As our law states, if you're a delinquent director, in other words, if you do not act in the best interest of the enterprise that you have been appointed to, to, to oversee, then you are in violation of that act. And you can be held responsible, whether criminally, civilly, or otherwise. And this, to me, is where we need to be going, because once the, uh, someone is declared delinquent, they cannot sit on any other boards. They are basically, just like an attorney would be struck off the roll, they can't appear in court the next day. And I think that would have a longer-lasting effect, as well as potential criminal prosecution. But we have not seen, I don't, I don't know of a single case mm. in the last decade where we, we declared a, a, a board member delinquent and they've been held responsible. So we also have a crisis of implementation of our own laws in this regard. Mm. Uh, I'll be taking your calls on 011-714-2006 on this conversation and on the WhatsApp line. It's 614 You talk about you know mm-hmm. delinquent directors and, and one of the cases that immediately comes up is that of Dudu Mieni and of course she's named multiple times even in in part one of this report. Karan, why is it that uh, you know the Companies Act as, as said by Dale is not being implemented? What do you find are often the challenges because even in the case of Dudu Mieni it was it was Alta if I'm not mistaken that had yeah. to take the issue to court and stick with it uh, before a, a, a final finding on, on, on uh, and declaration on, on her delinquency could be made. Yeah, that's right, Cathy. It, it was out uh, and in the case of Judah Miani. It's also worth noting that Corruption Watch has enrolled a matter uh, going back to 2018 to declare uh, certain directors at ESCOM delinquent. Uh, and that's uh, uh, those papers. Uh, there's been back and forth between the parties, and it's been in, uh, uh, on the roll for se- several years already. And we still haven't had a substantive hearing uh, in in our claim. I don't know. I mean, I think it might come down to the fact that, you know, the, the way in which um, an act like the Companies Act is, it, it, who is the guardian of that act within the state? You know, do we have? Uh, uh, entities that, that look at, you know, whether it be the, the CIPC, that, 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 that have a kind of approach to this that would say uh, when there are these types of findings in the public domain that they could, they could institute an investigation that would lead to a process whereby these types of matters could be implemented. So, you know, we don't have an activist approach to the implementation of something like the Companies Act. And this is, you know, another example, it's similar to, to whistleblower protection, where there isn't, uh, it's not clear that there is an entity within the state uh, that can then sort of drive the, the enforcement and implementation uh, of, the, of this type of legislation. So I think that's a, I think that's a big problem. And in the absence of a body, as you're saying, that would be a custodian of the Companies Act, does it mean that for those boards that have been dysfunctional, um, where there could well be a a declaratory order of of delinquency uh, that, that would apply, that in the absence of those matters being taken to court, currently there is no way of holding those individuals accountable? Unless, unless uh, uh, you know, you, a private party like Corruption Watch or Alta is able to to implement an action, you know, and then there's you know the the, the procedural safeguards that uh, 
that, that the people would have on the other side. So it's not a it's not a quick process. Mm. Uh, and I think that that's the real concern that we have around consequence management. And and uh, you know uh, this wouldn't be a criminal sanction, so there wouldn't be the same type of uh, uh, legal standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. But there's no quick administrative process. There's no uh, administrative tribunal that we can go in front of to to you know to put the case forward. Uh, you know, so it could kind of get stuck on the roll, and uh, and and the defendants can you know can use whatever tactics are available to to uh, to, to delay you know uh, a judgment in a matter like that. So yeah, it clearly is a gap in the current system. Let me quickly go to Valcom Wellington. You're calling us from Valcom. Good morning. I'm well, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to comment on the companies. Um, I think maybe here the problem might be uh, awareness. If I have to break it down in terms of what do I mean by awareness, that's to say uh, people have to be workshopped, you know, about how the company to work and that it does have elements of criminality in it where people can be prosecuted. If mm-hmm. you look at the situation of South Africa here, a person who is not employed does believe just to have a company. officials that are appointed at board level, that those officials would not know what the Companies Act has to say? Yes. Remember that, let me just look on the SOEs. Remember some of the things were deployment. Mm. And when you are deployed, it does not mean you are being assessed whether you are qualified in terms of carrying out the mandate of what companies said. One, it will be you carrying out the mandate of what the person you have deployed, uh, deployed you want, you know. So, at a certain rate, I'm just making an example. If you look at the qualifications of some other people, and I'm talking about big companies now, you look, you just have to mention names, but I think there's been a big company that will find themselves contravening near and simple, you know, uh, I mean, operations of companies that even a layman can understand. Mm. It's not that they do not know. But it's a question of they know nobody's going to do anything. There's no white thought, you know. So at the end of the day, they only come to the fore when things are getting worse, like they are now with our SOEs, you know. So uh, it is not only that we've got the NGOs, you know, that are still, but it will be a matter of them not being now on the exposure, like the SOEs are now, because some of the political uh, and parties have used that as they are too cheap for winning some votes. All right. But uh, the bottom line is, 
It's not about this board of directors only. The companies act in itself because we've got now a lot of companies that are not complying, you know, from even the, from the uh, SMEs. There need to be a watchdog and an enforcement, but not just an enforcement that will always penalize people. But people have to be workshops, you know, comprehensive leaders to understand what mm. does it take to be a director of the company and then at the end of the day being a, a board, you know. Okay. Uh, being a, a member of the board. Wellington, let's leave it there. Wellington out in Welcome. Dale, do, do you want to perhaps comment on that issue that's being raised by Wellington? Sure. I, I think Wellington is, is, is absolutely correct, first of all, in the sense that, you know, we've forgotten uh, when people are appointed to positions of responsibility and when you're appointed to a board of a SOE, that's a serious position of responsibility, you must be uh, you know, you must be up for the up, up for that position. In other words, you must know what you're doing, and you must know what the the terrain is. And the bottom line is, I can guarantee you that if we did a test today of most board of directors of SOEs, they would fail uh, a test on the Companies Act. They would fail a test on knowing what the the provisioning legislation is. And so I, I agree that first of all, we need a process of. Uh, making sure that those who are appointed are knowledgeable. And if they don't know, well, then fine. Let's do workshopping and all these other kinds of things. But the second thing, which Wellington has sort of raised but didn't address, but I think is fundamentally important, is the composition of the boards. And this has been raised by the Coburg case, where uh, Guedemontage has basically fired the civil society representative. Essentially, we have accepted a situation where boards are, are the, the sole preserve in terms of who's appointed uh, by, you know, it's my friend, it's people I know, it's people who are in the industry, it's, it's, it's the, and, and there's no public participation process. Now, we have demanded as civil society organizations public participation processes, for example, in a range of other appointments, state appointments, and, and public protector, so forth and so on. Why not with SOE boards? So that when we get a situation where a board is appointed, it's done through a public participation process. It's done transparently. And the composition is more than just the buddies of the minister or whoever, the Guptas in this case, or whoever it might be in power. And we get a situation where at least it doesn't guarantee that everything's going to go right, but it guarantees much, much more direct accountability and much more of a spotlight being put on those board of directors and the expectation that what they're going to do is going to count. Not only, not only in terms of the SOE, but their personal and professional life will also be under the, the spotlight. Because if they mess up, they're not going to be able to continue earning a living doing exactly the same thing. And I think when people begin to feel that heat and that responsibility, then we're on a right path. Right now, there's absolutely nothing that is preventing a board from doing pretty much as they please, and we see the results within uh, the state capture situation. Karan, from an administrative uh, perspective, do you see the opening up of uh, these processes to the public? Do you see those being easy to onboard? I wouldn't say it's necessarily going to be easy, Cathy, mm-hmm. um, but, but it's really about shifting the emphasis towards a more preventative approach to fighting corruption and future-proofing us, future-proofing our constitutional democracy so that we can't have a state capture type of situation in the future. So if you have an open, transparent appointment process that involves an element of public participation, then the sense is that you would have a better appointment process. You would have an appointment process which has already been subjected to some scrutiny, uh, and you would then avoid the kind of situation 
of the crony appointments that that have been you know that come out in the in the case studies and that Dale's talking about. So it's you know I, I, for me it's helpful to think about you know front ending a process in order to be have a more preventative approach to ensure that we don't get ourselves in this situation again. Let me quickly take Tzidi. So you're calling us in Gauteng. Oh, all right. Okay. It looks like we've actually just lost uh, Tzidi so on, on the line there. So the team is just going to try and get him back up. But Dale, of course, now we're looking at multiple recommendations that will come out of multiple reports. There's a lot to try and keep tabs on in terms of what is implemented and what is not. Uh, perhaps your focus in, in terms of what you're going to be watching? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, Karam also uh, got it right when he talked about structural changes. I think this is where, so the first thing is everybody's expecting, and rightfully so, um, you know, we want prosecutions. We want people to pay the price. We want those that uh, broke the law and have messed up our SOEs and, and put us in this position. We want them to have take responsibility. Fair enough. But we, we, I think we all realize that that's going to take quite a bit of time uh, for a range of reasons. Um, and uh, in the interim, which what we can do and what is within our power, both as a, as a society, as the, as the state, and, and in this case, uh, putting pressure on the ruling party and our particular president, is to say what this longer commission has showed us, what this entire state capture process has showed us is we need structural changes. We need to change certain laws. We need to change certain ways in which SOEs are set up. Uh, we need to change the processes of selection and participation, and we need to devolve powers in particular with regards from the executive. These kinds of things are necessary. You know, we, we, we've learned a lot in our 27 or 28 years of democracy. And one of the things is that democracy is fluid. You know, the constitution is fluid. We, we, I'm, I'm one of those that is uh, generally saying, yes, we must protect the constitution, but also we, we can change it. We can change laws, we can change things if there's a proper process. And we mustn't be afraid of those changes and putting in place the kinds of structural necessities that are going to, as, as, as Kram said, future-proof us, um, in, in this case, no guarantees, but putting in place a, a, these kinds of structural changes, I think, are going to be absolutely necessary. That's where I would concentrate a lot of energies from the public and, pre- and, and also, also on, in the NPA on prosecuting those individuals, but not put all our eggs in one basket and say, well, if so-and-so doesn't get prosecuted, then it's been a big failure. Not necessarily. If the structural changes come along and we do that, then at least we'll have won some of this battle. Karan? Yeah, no, I, I agree with what Dale said. If I was to focus on one, one specific area, and it, it does receive significant focus in, in the first report coming out of the Zonda Commission, it's the, 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 the imperative of fixing the public procurement system. Um, we know that along with uh, you know, irregular appointments, it really was the sub- subversion of the procurement system which allowed the looting to take place. And we, you know, we've seen recommendations on the table. There's a bill that's been in process moving very slowly. Uh, and again, it's you know, uh, when it comes to fixing procurement, it's really around principles of transparency and around greater openness in the system, which is one of the main principles which, which we've been advocating for.
Let me thank you both for your time today and for coming on to the show. Karan Singh is Executive Director at Corruption Watch. Dr. Dale McKinley is an independent analyst, writer and researcher. Uh, we certainly are still going to see so many more uh, recommendations, especially in the final part of that report. And, and, you know, one of my concerns is that we're simply going to have things that fall under the radar and disappear into the background and, you know, not necessarily be implemented. And therefore, the gaps that have been identified in this report will not be filled in the way that they need to. They, they won't be closed. And, and that means that our institutions, of course, will run the risk of, of remaining vulnerable if some of these issues are not adequately addressed. All right, you've also been sending some of your voice notes on this issue. I think we've got time for maybe one or two voice notes before we take you to the 11 o'clock news. Good morning, Sister Catherine. We can't continue uh, talking names in the report.